2: on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll get a thorough briefing on the latest Social Security and Medicare trustees report from Dr. Charles Blahaus. He's a former public trustee of the two programs and now senior research strategist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, a former senior policy advisor at the Social Security Administration is joining me for the conversation. Well, uh, as Congress is considering plans for major new spending of up to $3.5 trillion over the next 10 years and trying to figure out how to pay for it all, the annual report of the Social Security and Medicare trustees was released on August 31st with a timely reminder that we still haven't figured out how to fully pay for some of the big programs that we already have. Together, Social Security and Medicare comprise about 35 to 40% of all federal spending, and their payroll taxes account for about 35% of all federal revenues. Social Security serves about 65 million Americans, and about 63 million uh, qualify for Medicare. So in short, the future of these programs will have a a big effect on the budget and the economy and millions of individual households, whether as beneficiaries or as taxpayers. So we're fortunate today to have as our guest uh, a man who has spent a lot of time studying Social Security and Medicare. He was, for five years, uh, served as one of the two public trustees of Social Security and Medicare. And prior to that, he served as deputy director of President Bush's National Economic Council. Uh, He also uh, uh, served as the executive director of the bipartisan uh, President's Commission to Strengthen Social Security in 2001. And uh, of note, uh, on Capitol Hill, Blah served as policy director for U.S. Senator Judd Gregg of New Hampshire. And he was also legislative director before that for Senator Alan Simpson. Chuck and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Well, Chuck, before we get into the numbers, I'd like to just get a little context about what these trustees' reports are. What are they? What's the basic purpose uh, of them?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, and I find that uh, I'm not often, I'm not asked that question often enough uh, because <laughs> it, it really is important. I mean, people don't always understand why these reports matter and, and why they need to pay attention to them. Uh, these aren't just dry exercises in abstract accounting. They really cut to the heart of why we have a social security program, why we have a Medicare program, and whether we can have the programs as they're currently constituted Uh, Going forward, so you have to step back a little bit and say, you know, what what is distinctive about how these programs are constituted? Um, These aren't programs that are like other federal programs in the sense that you're not funding them out of the general revenues, at least for the most part, not funding them out of the general revenues of of the federal government. Um, You know, with something like defense or a welfare program or something, we, we don't keep track of how much money we collected for the program and compare that to how much was spent out we just you know throw it all into the general pot and add it to the deficit but um by design social security and at least part of medicare uh, was designed to not be like that uh, fdr wanted not a welfare program he wanted a contributory insurance program and so we have these separate trust funds we have a separate financing mechanism we have programs that are funded by worker payroll tax collections. And the whole idea is that these programs are supposed to be self-financing, and that that gives participants an extra measure of protection because they can say that they earned their benefits. So for example, in a welfare program, the people who are funding the program might be income taxpayers, which are only half of households, and the people collecting from the program might be a different set of people. But in social security, everybody's paying in. Rich are paying in, poor are paying in. Everybody becomes eligible for benefits. Everybody's benefits are based in some way, uh, at least on their contributions. And this is what gives really the security in Social Security, the, the, the fact that beneficiaries can say, we paid for these benefits. And what we paid is in the trust funds. And that's why you're not allowed to cut them. And so what the trustees reports do is they tell us whether uh, these programs are on track to continue that way. Uh, and the changes that we have to make in order to keep them operating that way. Because if we aren't willing to do that, if we aren't willing to align the program's tax collections and their benefit obligations, then we can't have these types of programs. We would have to abandon them. And uh, you'd have to sever that connection between contributions and benefits. You'd have to sever the whole earned benefit framework. And uh, these programs would be much more on the chopping block every year because they'd be competing uh, in sort of the general pool of the federal government for funding. So, Basically, these, these reports tell us what do we need to do to keep these programs operating as they have been in the past.
2: And you, were, uh, you had the, the privilege of serving as a trustee uh, of the Social Security and Medicare system. And so uh, could you explain a little bit uh, the role of, you had a kind of a unique role called the public trustee, you and Bob Reichauer, right. uh, in, your, in your term. Uh, and could you explain a little bit about what is the role of the public trustee and why is it that that job is vacant right now and has been since you and Bob left?
1: <laughs> right, and that's, that's very unfortunate. Uh, but there are six trustees overall, and four of them are trustees by virtues of their government positions. So the managing trustees, the secretary of the treasury, and then uh, three of the other trustees are the secretaries of HHS and labor and the social security commissioner. Uh, But starting in the 1980s, pursuant to the 1983 Social Security amendments, they added two public trustees, and these are two members of the the general public, uh, one Republican, one Democrat, and their job is to give independent bipartisan oversight to the projections, uh, to basically uh, substantiate public confidence in the objectivity uh, of the projections. Now, as you might imagine, uh, Secretary of Treasury has a few other things to do in the course of a day, <laughs> HHS Secretary <laughs> does as well. And so from a practical perspective, the public trustees roll up their sleeves and do a lot of the work of deciding on the assumptions and methodologies for uh, the trustees report. Obviously they're assisted in that work by the actuaries offices and the staff of the departments, but uh, most of the year, the working group consists only of the public trustees and staff of the other departments rather than the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of HHS and so forth. And um, so that's why we have public trustees. And um, um, they're very important, I think, because there was a concern certainly back in the, in the early 1980s uh, that um, without independent bipartisan public oversight Uh, the projections and methodologies could be subject to political manipulation. Now, I don't think we've seen that. I think we've been very fortunate we haven't seen that. Uh, But but, um, that's in large part because we have had bipartisan oversight. Now, our terms um, ended in 2015. Uh, We were renominated by President Obama to continue, and we sort of died on the vine. (laughs) They didn't act on our nominations. Uh, the, The nomination process was already becoming a little dysfunctional uh, in election season 2016. and only grew more so during the Trump years, uh, and there were no nominees confirmed during the Trump years, and we haven't had nominees yet from uh, the Biden White House. I I hope we will, because they're very important, and uh, it's important to public confidence in the projections.
2: Well, uh, with that uh, background, and uh, before I bring uh, Steve into the conversation just uh what's what's your quick take on what we found from the latest trustees report what is it uh, signaling to us
1: uh, alarm <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a it's um I, i've been searching for words that are strong enough uh to describe uh, these reports and in particular the social security report um say they're concerning reports i think understates it um I think if we didn't have a dysfunctional political climate, uh, the, the publication of a report like this would immediately cause lawmakers to snap into action and say, what do we have to do to preserve these programs? And of course, we're not seeing that. Um, but just to give you some numbers, uh, the, um, the actuarial shortfall in Social Security, according to this report, uh, is arcanely described as... of national taxable payroll, and that sounds very uh, impossible for anyone to understand, and it sounds very small, but it's not small at all, so I'll try to translate it. Basically, that's 21% of all future benefit obligations, and that includes benefit obligations to people already collecting benefits. Uh, If you express it as a percentage of future benefit claims, it's 25%. So imagine, for example, that Congress were willing to cut benefits immediately to get system finances back in balance. They would have to make those immediate cuts for new claims 25%. Now, again, carry the thought experiment forward. How likely is it that lawmakers will be willing to cut benefits 25% the next day? It's, it's not going to happen. Any changes they do make, um, they would phase in more gradually. So I'm, I'm just making these numbers up, but you know, maybe 1% the first year, 2% the next year, who knows, but they would certainly do it more gradually than that, which means you wouldn't get to that 25% till a couple decades from now, which means ultimately you'd have to be a lot bigger. Right? You'd have to get to about a 40% or so benefit change. And again, remember that's affecting everybody. That's including the poorest of the poor. Uh, presumably we would not cut benefits 40% for the poorest of the poor even in the future. So you start, you know, you start carving out exemptions and exceptions for people, uh, you're looking at cuts of 50% and above for, you know, middle to upper income people. I mean, the, the numbers just become astronomical. And that's where we are today. If we, if we continue to defer a solution, uh, the numbers become so large that they are you know, absurd from the standpoint of whether we can continue uh, with these programs as they're historically structured.
0: Steve, jump in. Yeah, I think Chuck is making a good point. And you know, that is that, you know, the shortfall in the system that exists today um, you know, assumes that that the trust fund will run out around the year 2034. And you know, there's there's really no politically plausible change on the benefit side, certainly, that could be made today that would avoid the trust fund insolvency. You simply can't cut benefits fast enough and big enough to avoid trust fund insolvency. I mean, you know, if we'd have done this 10 years ago or 20 years ago, which you know, ironically, we, we knew this train wreck was coming. If you go back and look at the trustees reports going all the way back to the late 1970s when they enacted the current formula, you know, we've known somewhere around the year 2030 to 2040, that's when the trust fund would become insolvent, and or, or depleted or exhausted, depending on your your you know, preferred terminology. So, I mean, it's not a surprise. We've known for 30 years that the, that the the doomsday, the date of depletion, uh, would somewhere around the mid 2030s, and so we've had plenty of time to make gradual changes. But unfortunately, Congress has continued to kick the can down the road and they've deferred action. And part of it is political because, you know, you have the two political parties who are saying, you know, the Republicans have never seen a tax increase that that they liked and the Democrats have never seen a benefit cut that they like. And, you know, occasionally you'll get a very small bipartisan group of like maybe four <laughs> or five members, and they'll come up with some bipartisan plan that'll do a little on the tax side and a little on the benefit side. And as a result, the rest of their colleagues on, on both sides of the aisle, you know, reject it. Oh, that's too much in taxes or that's too much on the benefit side. And so, you know, we keep putting this decision off. And I guess, you know, my greatest fear is we're gonna continue to put it off for another decade or two. You know, at that point, the, the trust fund insolvency is gonna be, you know, right upon us. And then there's you know, almost nothing politically you can do. And the path of least resistance, I think, is, is uh, general revenue. And you know, the example here, of course, is the Highway Trust Fund. In theory, the Highway Trust Fund operates in a similar manner, where we collect gasoline taxes. We put it in a trust fund. The money is divvied out to the states to build roads and bridges. But the gasoline taxes have never been high enough to pay for all the construction. And as a result, Congress has routinely put general revenue into the trust fund to make up for the shortfall. And, you know, there's some precedent here for Social Security. Back in 2010, uh, as part of the, the response to the financial crisis, Congress cut the payroll tax by two percentage points. Well, that was like $100 billion a year. And in order to hold Social Security harmless, they replaced the lost payroll tax revenue with general revenue. And so, again, you know, the fear is that when we get to 2032 or 2033 and trust fund insolvency is looming around the corner, you know, the path of least resistance is to say, oh, well, we'll just write some IOUs and stuff them in the trust fund and call it general revenue transfers. And, you know, that that's going to be the, the political, you know, solution. But in fact, that, you know, it's certainly not a real solution from a from an economic or policy perspective.
2: Yeah. And as Chuck said, that really, that really changes the fundamental nature of the program. And uh, uh, Chuck, as you wrote in a, uh, an op-ed in Barron's uh, recently, if we're going to make that decision, it should be explicit rather than just by default. But we seem to be stumbling in that direction. One thing, uh, just to to clarify as a technical point, there are, there are two social security trust funds. There's the retirement portion the disability portion and technically they're separate uh and we often refer to when we say the trust fund trust fund will be exhausted in 2034 that's actually a a, a hypothetical combination of the the two trust funds it makes it it's a convenient uh, thing to um, to refer to but um so with that having been said what what would actually happen uh, Chuck, if, uh, if nothing happened and we sort of stumble towards things, as, as Steve was describing, when, when people say the trust fund would become insolvent, what would happen to the benefits at that point?
1: All right. Well, in theory, uh, if the trust fund uh, became insolvent, there would be an interruption in benefit payments uh, because the, the trust fund under law uh, can only spend on benefits to the extent that it has resources in, in the trust fund. Uh, And all spending on benefits must occur from trust fund resources. Uh, From a practical perspective, uh, I I agree with Steve, that's not what's going to happen. From a practical perspective, at that point, it's much more likely that lawmakers would say, well, we're not going to suddenly have a 25% benefit reduction. Uh, We'll bail out the system with with general revenues. And again, I I think um, this is, uh, again, just to accentuate a couple of the things that Steve said. Uh, we are certainly well past the point where you can fix this problem with a benefit change alone, uh, with an eligibility change alone, with, and I think for all practical purposes, with a tax increase alone. I mean, you have to do not just a little of everything, but a lot of everything in order to get the job done uh, incredibly, I mean, and, and renders it untenable. Or people on the right to say, no, you can't raise taxes to bail out Social Security and people on the left to say you can't slow down benefit growth to fix Social Security. And we actually have people being even more irresponsible than that. You have people demanding a benefit increase above and beyond the current benefit schedule that there's no earthly possibility of, of, of Congress collecting enough tax revenue fund, uh, which to my mind is almost tantamount to sabotage of the program because it, you, you're virtually ensuring that you would not enable the program, the program to continue as historically constituted if you, uh, if you, you take that position. Uh, so again, I think um, I would return to the, the point that I made in that piece, which is that, yes, we can make a societal decision to have a very different type of program, that we can have a, a general revenue subsidized program uh, and have some people supporting it with income taxes uh, those taxes won't be credited towards benefits, and basically, you know, any individual's contribution—excuse me, any individual's benefits—really won't have much to do anymore with what they themselves put into Social Security, uh, and that seems to be where we're headed through the inaction, I would say, negligence of lawmakers. Uh, but that's not because the public wants that, <laughs> right? There's there's been no uh, directive from the public to say. You know we don't we don't want this type of social security program anymore. We're we're comfortable with a with a program that's more like a welfare program, uh, but it's it's going to be sprung upon them by lawmakers who basically say, well, uh, we just we have no alternative at this point, uh, and, um, and and that's unfortunate. We, we shouldn't have a fundamental change a change this fundamental to a program like social security happening simply because. Uh, you know, the the public was misdirected, as it were, as to uh, this irreversible change taking place.
2: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are uh, talking with Dr. Charles Blahaus, a former uh, public trustee of the Social Security and Medicare systems. And we're discussing the latest trustees report. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are uh, talking with Chuck Blahous, a former public trustee of Social Security and Medicare, and we're discussing the latest uh, trustees report. Um, you know, we we were um, we were talking about the trust funds, the hypothetically combined trust funds going insolvent in, in in 2034, and it gets me thinking about you know. If, any individual listener out there thinking about well how does that relate to me uh so if you are um say claiming full benefits this year yeah, i think you'd be 66 years old because i think that's the age for full retirement benefits this year So that means you've only got 13 years of full benefits but then if you think about somebody who's got a claim full benefits in 2034, that person may be looking at retirement benefits under promise law that are considerably less than what they're thinking and they're approaching retirement age. <laughs> what, what should people be thinking about that, Chuck?
1: Well, I would say that there's sort of different layers of the onion, right? If, if you want to just say, what, does, what would literally happen under current social security law if it didn't change, right? Then then you'd be looking at the sudden loss of a quarter of your benefits in the year 2034. Now, as I think our discussion uh, to this point in the conversation has noted, it's very unlikely lawmakers would actually allow that to happen, that the, the amount of your uh, benefit that would be subject to uncertainty would <laughs> be about uh, one quarter. Uh, but the um, you know that doesn't necessarily mean lawmakers would just sit back and let your benefits be cut by uh, one quarter. But very importantly, uh, you would be um, you know at some considerable risk uh, and uncertainty because remember historically the reason your social security benefits have been you know inviolate from sudden cuts is because of this idea that social security was a self-financing system and you paid for your benefits and that ethic is not observed in in programs that are funded with general revenues and historically with social security as as Steve noted, we've let some general revenues creep in in various ways, but there's usually been a way to try to uh, uh, make us just a little bit pregnant, as it, as it were. Uh, for example, there's some income taxation uh, of benefits, but it's very carefully sort of constrained and justified uh, with with a certain rationale. It's not just an open tap on general revenues. And then there was a very uh, specific infusion of uh general revenues when the payroll tax was cut in 2011-2012 but then it was like we all kind of decided to pretend that this never actually happened and that we were you know back to true self-financing going forward uh if we did a, a permanent and ongoing general revenue bailout in 2034 we wouldn't be able to engage in that pretense at all because everyone would know that the general revenue fusions were constantly happening they were not limited and, uh, and we're, were much larger and doing violence to the idea of, of anyone really having paid for their own benefits. Uh, and so what I would say to that person is that, I'm not worried about 25% of your benefits suddenly being cut. What I think would happen would be that your benefits would be subject to renegotiation each year, the way that welfare programs uh, benefits are subject to renegotiation each year. You know, we, we, we reset the terms, we change eligibility rules, we have means tests, we have all sorts of things that sort of stuff becomes a lot more likely once we turn to a general revenue finance system.
2: So it's, it's actually a lot more immediate issue than, uh, oh, well, we'll wait to 2034 and uh, see what happens. Uh, it's, it's actually an issue now, which is, and it has been for some time <laughs> and we're, we're running out of time. Uh, Steve, I wanted to um, uh, turn to you here to, and to, get Chuck to comment too as a public trustee. There are all sorts of assumptions that go into this report, economic assumptions about fertility and mortality and uh, economic growth and wages and employment. Uh, what are the, uh, are the uh, well, let me just turn it over to you. What are, what are some of the uh, key assumptions and uh, and how do they get made?
0: Um, yeah, thanks. So. One of my previous jobs uh, before I came to Concord was actually at the Social Security Administration. Um, I was there for three years and one of my my duties, I think Chuck referred to this earlier, is there is what's called the Trustees Working Group. And that's comprised of the Department of Treasury, the Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, Social Security Administration. And then of course there used to be the two public trustees. And essentially the staff of each of those uh, four federal agencies Meet throughout the year uh, to discuss all of the assumptions that go into the trustees' report. And obviously, at the staff level, we make recommendations that ultimately are signed off by the respective secretaries of each of those departments, or in the case of Social Security, the commissioner. And so, you know, it, it's interesting. You talk about making laws, and you know, making sausage, and you know, watching how what how decisions are made and how things happen. You know, now I was there for the three years after Chuck had left. So there were in fact no public trustees there. And so, you know, the the, the trustees working group was comprised of an interesting mix of both career civil service, uh, you know, full-time federal employees, and there were a mix also of political appointees. And, you know, the the discussions always led in in interesting directions, but, you know, there were disagreements over interest rates, you know, inflation rates, fertility, mortality. I mean, you know, because Social Security is such a big program, it affects so much of, of the economy. There are a lot of of, uh, of factors that go into making those assumptions, uh, whether it's, you know, health, the cost of health care um, or changes in fertility and mortality. And, you know, I, I guess I would sort of, you know, be interested in Chuck's perspective. You know, my view of you know, not having public trustees there, is that that probably is detrimental to the process. Certainly from a public perspective, you know, if they think, oh, well, you know, it's all of the Trump administration appointees making decisions, or all of the Obama administration people making decisions, or now with uh, the Biden administration, all the Biden administration people making decisions, you know, how political is that? And, you know, what check do does the does the public trustees provide I mean one of the things that's missing from the trustees report now is the section of the report written by the public trustees and you know you go back all the way back to for example when uh, when Dave Walker was a public trustee back in the 1990s I mean there have been some significant changes made to the report uh, in terms of style in terms of presentation uh, in terms of issues that are discussed and to the extent that you know, the, the political people want to view things one way, or the career people want to view things one way. You know the public trustees have the opportunity to weigh in you know, with an equal voice, basically because they they get to write part of the report. So you know, anyway, let, let me stop there and just sort of throw, throw it over to Chuck and say, you know, what was your experience as you know as a public trustee in terms of sort of shaping the debate around the reports uh, in the years you were there?
1: Well obviously I have a, a bias in, in automatically believing that the public trustees are, are really important and in and, and part for one of the reasons that you laid out, which is that in terms of public confidence in the projections, uh, even if they aren't being shaded for political purposes or to serve the you know, the agenda of the White House, uh, the absence of public trustees gives rise to that suspicion right And you have for example, if we had four years where the the report was signed only by uh, cabinet officials of the Trump administration. And I think we were fortunate. If you go back and read the reports, I think you see that the the trustees during that period did their level best to put out uh, objective nonpartisan reports. Uh, But if there had been something that was especially controversial uh, in those projections, it would have been very easy for people to leap to the worst case explanation, which is that the numbers were being uh, jimmied for political effect. Uh, and so I, I do think that's that's extremely important. That's that's um, certainly something I was very mindful of when I served as a trustee. I, I, there were years uh, during the Obama administration where I was the sole Republican trustee, and I was I was very aware that uh, the credibility of the process, uh, you know, I, I, that I bore some important responsibility for safeguarding that. Uh, and you know, I was always very careful uh, if we were having an internal. Disagreement about some issue. I never complained about it out of school. I would never want to uh, unleash, um, you know, paranoia or suspicion on Capitol Hill uh, that my fellow trustees were up to something sinister just because we were having a, a disagreement. So I, I always took great care uh, at the trustees pressers to say first and foremost, you know, these projections may not be perfect, but they've been. Put together, you know, is as objectively and as nonpartisan a fashion as possible. Now, in terms of my practical experience, uh, just a couple of observations. One of the things that struck me uh, was that some of the fiercest and most emotional disagreements uh, in the trustees process really had almost nothing to do with um, policy disagreements or political disagreements, but the um, the technical disagreements of career staff can be pretty strongly felt. I mean, uh, you'd have two different departments going at it because they have a really different view of how to estimate something. And I was very frequently struck by how the sort of the, you know, the most intense disagreements in our process, uh, you know, were between career appointees. They weren't between a career appointee and a political appointee. uh, And and they were very technical in nature. And and sometimes I would think that that those would become the most intense ones, you know, whereas uh, things that, that, might more straightforwardly reflect uh, a simple, you know, policy difference or, or view of political economy. Those were easier to dispense with. And the last thing I would say is that you know, look, we all have our biases, right? I have them, you have them, everybody has them, uh, and we all get used to a certain way of thinking about things. And so certainly, um, that's you know, that's going to be true of long-serving staff like like everyone else. And sort of the, the longer uh, that you go, uh, thinking that a certain way is the right way to do it, uh, the more resistant you're going to be to someone coming in and saying, no, I don't think that's the right way to do it at all. You should be doing it this, this other way. And, and, and it takes you a little bit more by surprise. And, and I, I tend to define that, again, if, if Bob and I were having um, you know, difficulty dislodging a particular uh, assumption, uh it, it, again it, it almost never had to do with anyone's political agenda it was usually something where this is the way we've always done it and we think it's the right way because we've been doing it this way for 20 years it's harder to convince someone of that uh or that that's not quite right um and, and we really didn't run into uh, sort of uh, political agendas very much at all
2: you're listening to facing the future this is bob bixby your host i'm talking with chuck Blahouse, a former public trustee of Social Security and Medicare, and with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We're discussing the latest trustees report of Social Security and Medicare, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Dr. Charles Blahaus, a former public trustee of the Social Security and Medicare systems, and with Steve Robinson, the chief economist of the Concord Coalition and a former senior policy analyst at the Social Security Administration. Uh, We have a a wealth of uh, experience here about Social Security, and we're talking about the latest reports of the uh, report of the Social Security and Medicare trustees We've been talking mostly about Social Security, uh, but I do want to get in a few words about Medicare before we wrap things up. Um, Chuck, the, uh, what's, what's, what does the uh, latest trustees report tell us about the status of the Medicare program?
1: Well, I think a good summary would be that the Social Security financial shortfall is much bigger, but that the Medicare financial shortfall is much sooner. Now, that's a very broad o- oversimplification. Um, Again, stepping back a little bit, Medicare is financed in some ways similar to Social Security and in some ways that are different. Uh, Medicare has two trust funds. Uh, The hospital insurance trust fund is funded a lot like Social Security. It's funded with a payroll tax. uh, And as with Social Security, you get these annual reports from the trustees uh, where they make an assessment of the the program's actuarial balance or actuarial actuarial imbalance. Uh, any projected depletion date in the trust fund, and and all the same things that they do for social security. Uh, But there's another trust fund as well, the Supplementary Medical Insurance Trust Fund. And that covers things like physician services, that's Part B, outpatient hospital, that's also in Part B. Part D, which is prescription drugs. And that is financed very differently. Uh, That has a trust fund that is basically always kept solvent by statutory design. Um, Each year, its revenues are automatically adjusted about a quarter of them come in from premiums that are paid by beneficiaries. The other three quarters come from the federal government and to a certain degree, some transfers from state governments and the like. Uh, But but basically every year that part of Medicare uh, is just automatically given whatever revenues it needs. Now, that doesn't mean that that part of Medicare doesn't have financing strains, it does. It just means that they're manifested in different ways. Uh, and, And this is all very important to understand because when we see and this is, a, this is a story that I, I tell often with to Social Security as well. When we see this, this overemphasis on the date of depletion of the trust fund, we're only getting a small part of the picture, a small part of the problem. And in Medicare's case, hospital insurance is the only part that you get that date for. And that's the smaller part of the program. That's less than half the program. Uh, that neglects the bigger part of the program. And the bigger part of the program, uh, the problem, uh, is manifested in rising premium assessments on participants, rising pressure on taxpayers. Uh, And and that part is actually growing even faster. Uh, In about 30, 40 years, that's going to be 2 thirds of Medicare under current projections. So um, again, uh, on, on the Medicare hospital insurance side, we have an immediate trust fund depletion threat five years from now. And on the other side, we have exploding costs.
2: Yeah, I think that 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 is something that a lot of people don't understand. We were talking about replacement rates on Social Security earlier. I think a lot of people naturally assume, <clears throat> excuse me, on their Medicare premiums that they pay for Part B and Part D that they must be paying for the program. Hmm. And uh, hour, yeah, it, pay, it only covers about a quarter of it by design. Right. And uh, although it used to uh, Part B used to the the. the design was to have the premiums cover 50%, I think, uh, originally, and that, that got lowered. But the, the point is that uh, both programs, Part D and Part B of Social Security, I mean of Medicare, uh, represent a, a big draw in federal revenues. And it kind of flies under the radar screen because of this fixation on the HI uh, uh, trust fund insolvency date. Um, One of the things that I always, uh, for the last several years, that just strikes me about the Medicare report is that the actuaries do an alternative scenario. And basically, Congress says, I'll I'll let you kind of describe it. But I mean, basically, the actuaries uh, file an alarming report that says, by the way, the numbers that you're reading in this trustees report, we don't think are very uh, representative of what's likely to happen. why do, they, why, why do they feel compelled to do that?
1: Yeah, this is, this is one of those things that's hard to explain in 10 words or less. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'll, I'll try.
2: try. Well, I'll give you 12 or 15 words if you... <laughs> I'll
1: try. But All right. So under current law, there are some pretty aggressive, ambitious um, cost savings, basically cuts to provider payments, uh, in, mostly in Medicare hospital insurance. And there's just a little bit each year, like 1% each year, but obviously you cut something 1% each year, it compounds a lot over time, right? And they were enacted as part of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the program hospital insurance solvency depends to a very large extent on those uh, cuts being upheld, right, If if we didn't have those, and we hadn't had them to date, uh, Medicare hospital insurance would be going under much earlier. In fact, it might have gone under already. I, I know that at the time those were enacted, the projection, uh, depletion date was 2017. So for all we know, if they hadn't implemented them, the program might already be installed. Um, but as um, as many people know, but, but many people don't, so I'll lay it out, uh, Medicare provider payment rates are much lower than they are in the private insurance side. So Medicare is paying providers about 60% what private insurance pays for inpatient hospital services. They pay about 74% what private insurance pays for physician services. And so we're starting out only paying 60% of what private insurance pays and we're ratcheting that down 1% a year. So in a couple of decades, the actuaries say, Medicare is only gonna be paying 40% of what private insurance pays. And for physicians, Uh, And this is actually due to a different law, the MACRA. I won't spell it out, but that's the acronym that passed in 2015. Physician payments are going to be cut even more aggressively over time. Uh, So those will be down to something like 27% of private insurance rates. So the actuaries are saying, hold on a second. Uh, If we do that, uh, our projections show that we're going to be driving more and more hospitals into negative facility margins, basically putting them in the red, and they're not they're not gonna be able to sustain operations, there's gonna be enormous pressure on Congress to roll these cuts back. So what they do is they they produce this scenario uh, in which from 2028 to 2042, they assume that these these payment cuts for hospital insurance, physicians, et cetera, that they are basically um, phased out and that we stop making them by 2042 or so. And if we do that, the Medicare costs
2: are much, much higher. Um, Steve, any uh, any uh, comments on the Medicare report or questions for Chuck?
0: Well, I mean, I th- I think, and this goes back to an earlier discussion. Um, you know, we we as policy analysts feel strongly that Congress has got to make some tough decisions, and they've they've made a few tough decisions in the past. But unfortunately, Congress today appears to be moving in the opposite direction, and in, in the case of Medicare. You know there's a big push to add you know dental uh, vision and hearing coverage. There's a push to lower the eligibility age from sixty five down to I don't know sixty or fifty five or however. So you know here here we are talking about the fact that these we can't afford the programs as they exist today with the available revenue. And yet Congress is talking about adding even more benefits to to the program. Is that is that a problem? Uh, Well, I
2: think that that uh, shows uh, it's it's kind of an interesting um, timing on the report this year. Um, Chuck, as a as a final uh, let's let's see if we can end on a note of optimism here, which is always difficult to do on this program. But (laughs) let's let's uh, you've been working on this issue for a long time and certainly have been working across the aisles on this. and do you see any uh, any uh, hope or possibility that we might be able to find some uh, common ground on addressing the shortfalls in both programs?
1: Well, you know it's hard. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll promise to get to the optimistic note <laughs> with the pessimistic <laughs> first. But you know I, I agree with Steve that you know it's 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 a it's a concerning environment right now because at a time when we're getting more and more information that we need to be slowing down the growth of federal spending, federal entitlement spending, spending in Social Security and Medicare, all of that. Instead, the mindset seems to be to do exactly the opposite. And that's not, that is not constructive. That is not, uh, not going to serve these programs well. It's not going to serve the people who depend on them well. Uh, we need to figure out how to sustain current Social Security and Medicare before we start trying to build new programs that we can't afford. Um, having said that, I, I think the optimistic pitch I would make is that. Um, Oftentimes we act as though it's all pain and no gain <laughs> it, when you, you, you fix program finances, um, that it's, it's only unpleasant. You know, lawmakers don't wanna raise taxes. They don't wanna cut the growth of benefits. They don't wanna do any of that stuff. And I, I spent a lot of time studying social security last year and my analytical conclusion was that there are some win-wins. You know, it may, may be politically difficult to slow the growth of benefits over the next few decades but you get a lot of pluses out of it as well you get a more generationally equitable program you get a program that that treats younger workers better than if we didn't do that Uh, you actually have a better chance of having a truly progressive solution if you look at for example uh, the the rises in income inequality uh, over the last few decades you know it's been much greater uh, Income gains among people who are going to be Social Security beneficiaries over the next few decades than people are coming in to be young taxpaying workers. So you can actually optimize the progressivity uh, and, and the burden that you place on the Uber rich uh, if you do this. And, and there's so there's there's gains in terms of progressivity, there's gains in terms of generational equity, there's gains in terms of siding with working seniors, there's all sorts of things you can do that do have wins. Uh, that are wins for system finances and wins for participants. So I think my optimistic spin is that it's not all pain and no gain. That may be the political perception, but um, you can actually advertise improvements to social security finances as also being winners for the fairness and efficacy of the program.
2: Well, I'm I'm gonna uh, end the program by locking that in on a note of optimism for everybody. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, We've been talking to Chuck Blauhaus, a former public trustee of the Social Security and Medicare systems. Uh, Steve Robinson and I have been discussing the latest trustees report with Chuck and ending on a note of optimism. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in. I'll be back next week. This is Bob Bixby, your host. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.